Hello and welcome to the Jazz Jam Podcast. I'm your host, Dwayne Gunnels, joined by my co-host, Max Levy. In our album today, we're going to be getting into the great album, Go by Dexter Gordon. Max, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Glad to keep doing this with you. I'm really excited. I love Dexter Gordon, what he's all about, and there's so much to talk about with this album. Yeah, I'm really excited to get into it. But before we start, I had just a couple questions. I have a question for you, and we have a listener question that we're going to dive into. My question to you, Max, is what are some of the weirdest song requests that you've gotten on gigs? I like this. This is kind of a jazz question of the week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We can keep doing some of these to start out the pod. Um, Well, that is a great question, and a couple uh ones come to mind most recently i was doing a winery gig on uh this past sunday and um at the end of the gig when i was packing up and moving my sacks and some equipment a woman at one of the tables we were outside it was a lovely day but as i was walking out woman at the table said hey you do you know any kenny g and of course (laughs) (laughs) Um, that is something you don't want to hear as a gigging jazz musician most of the time because, you know, I'm doing Sunny Side of the Street, we're doing classic swing, some Duke Ellington, blues, bossa novas, and um, Kenny G has really nothing to do with that. <laughs> and uh, so I, I wanted to be nice. I, I didn't quite know how to answer, but I said, you know, I, I've played some Kenny G a little bit, and yeah, I know a little bit. And she goes, oh, my God, why didn't you play any? We love Kenny G. That's, and, that's so funny. Yeah. And then the woman at the same table, um, a few chairs down, looked at me and said, you know, you're pretty good anyway. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, thank you. Um, that's really funny. <laughs> have a great day. Yeah. I just I, I applaud her for at least, you know, suggesting a saxophone player. And, you know, if you don't know much about jazz, Kenny G may be your only reference. Um, Yeah, that's got to be probably one of the most common, like, non-jazz listeners. When they hear you playing jazz music, they're just going to associate Kenny G with jazz music. So they're just, you know, oh, man, why aren't you playing Kenny G? When for us, it's just like, well, that's not really swinging. So that's, you know, that's that's why we're (laughs) not going to play Kenny G. But yeah, yeah, it's you want to be nice to people when they approach in that manner. But it's, you know, at the same time, it's like when they're like, oh, you're OK, even though you don't play KG, it's kind of offensive, even though they're not trying to be. Um, I think one of the weirdest ones that we've gotten as a band is one time we were playing like at a community center for some kind of event. And this guy came up to us because we're Max Levy in the Hawaiian shirts, So we wear Hawaiian shirts and he goes hey, can you guys play us some beach music? We really want to dance. And we're just like, why would you think that we know beach music? Like, we're a jazz band. Like, that's just such a random request. Like, And the other thing is beach music is not really as definable as that person probably thinks it is. Yeah, I, I guess there's like a kind of a genre, but yeah, like, what is beach music? Like, we can play like something about a beach does that make it beach music like to pick a jazz standard that's about the ocean you know does that make it yeah we could play how deep is the ocean exactly is that beach music? that's beach <laughs> i mean the... yeah so that was an interesting one we were just like i just take i was like i didn't know what to say i was just like uh yeah. n- no 
I was like, no, we don't know any beach music. So, yeah. Yeah. I, and one other one that comes to mind is once I got uh, a request to play some Dave Matthews, which, you know, is almost there because they have a, a tremendous saxophone player with them. Yeah, uh, Jeff Coffin. He's yeah, great. Jeff, yep. But, you know, I would have to know the head or, or really dig in a little bit more than just, hey, blowing on a tune that may or may not be Dave Matthews or on a tune they may or may not have covered that I could possibly do. You know, that's... Yeah, I think people just hear saxophone and they're like, oh, do you know this random song that has saxophone in it? And it's like, probably probably not, you know? like, But that's <laughs> yeah, not a, I mean, like a knock on the Dave Matthews band. Like, they're really good and Jeff Coffin's great. But the, like, just for us to know something like, oh, do you know this random one tune that just has like 30 seconds of sax in it? It's just like probably not gonna happen so <laughs> yeah it doesn't work as well as you think it is but it does it does keep us on our toes sometimes we get really great requests people ask us to do actual jazz standards and we might know them or not know them so i know max told me he got asked to play on green dolphin street which is a really great request you know so yeah that that's the opposite it's like so relevant that oh thank god we 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 can do this we got one yeah no problem yeah you know? so that's that's the opposite side of the spectrum but it's always fun to to see what kind of requests people are getting because i know musicians get crazy ones all the time you know whether it be people yelling uh free bird or whatever the the case may be so cool um let's get into a listener question so if you if you're listening and you have a question you want to ask us uh feel free to reach out to us our email is the jazz jam podcast at gmail.com so if you have any questions feel free to to shoot us an email and we'll get to answering them on the podcast for you so this listener question comes from a good friend of our band and of the podcast now uh ken brown he's been listening to us since the very beginning of our our group so uh i'll i'll ask the question that he sends in the email max and you can kind of get into to the the answer to the question so it says max I've been on a real basic kick here lately. There's a trumpet solo in Count's Place on the album Count Basie and the Kansas City 7 that starts at 2 minutes and 33 seconds into the song that's got me scratching my head. It's obviously intentional and done by a musician that knows what he's doing. Your first reaction might be that it sounds atonal, but yet it isn't. It still fits. At first I didn't like the solo, but now it has me intrigued. Do you have any idea what's going on musically or how he's playing within the chord structure? I wonder if the Count looked at him and said, dude, what the heck was that? But it got on the recording. Ha ha. So, Max, uh, get us. Yeah, let's take a little bit of a, a dive into to this lick that's played to, to begin this solo. Yeah. I, first, I want to thank Ken for the question. You know, he's a family friend. Um, he, he keeps track track of what we're doing and, and i just really appreciate that um so i'm happy to, to answer a listener question and this is very interesting the first thing i want to address is ken's use of the word atonal so because he he put it in his question i just want to double check some things theoretically that we should talk about number one being most of jazz if we're talking um you know, trad jazz, New Orleans, all the way through swing era into bebop, into West Coast, into post bop, into fusion. All of that is tonal. And when improvisers are are making up a solo, you know, from the licks that they've practiced and the harmony that's in the song and, and pulling from the melody, 
there is a tonal reason why they are playing what they're playing. Even if it's it looks like it's out of the key or it sounds dissonant, there's chordal substitutions, there's um, chordal extensions, there's um, doing ideas in uh, one chord and then doing that exact same idea up a half step and then back down. Those are all, there's all tonal reasons for that. Yeah. And one thing I think is good to point out is that things might be reaching far from the tonal center in jazz at times. Like ideas, like you were saying, might not be centered around the one or whatever, whatever chord you're on, whether you're on the one, the two, the five, you might be reaching out away from that. But in jazz, you're usually, it's with reason coming back to it. When we speak of atonal music in a theoretical sense where atonal music is more to describe a genre of classical music that's mathematically atonal it's it's written to have no tonal center whatsoever that's the the point of it and that's where it gets its atonality so i think what ken's referring to here is not necessarily atonalism it's just something that's not centering around the one necessarily when the one's being played so it does sound more so i think he might be feeling a sound of like unresolved or unresolution because and we'll get into why but yeah i think that's important to note that classical music atonalism is like completely atonal you're not supposed to be able you shouldn't be able to write it on a piece of sheet music and be like this is the tonal center like this is what it's referring back to it all that's that's the kind of the point of atonalism that's right. Maybe in some free jazz or really parts uh, parts of really modern jazz music, there's some atonality. But besides that, there is a tonal harmonic reason for the notes that they're choosing. So in this particular solo, Ken is asking about the beginning of the trumpet solo. And this is a great record. I actually have it on vinyl from Impulse Records from uh, 1962. And... So he's talking about the asking about the beginning and it's that Jones on trumpet. And so he starts out the first four bars. The tune is a blues. And so he's starting out the first four bars, um, kind of outlining what we call tritone substitution. So tritone substitution is more or less the general idea of playing instead of a a root dominant seventh chord you're going to emphasize or you're going to play an idea based on the tritone of that chord so for the trumpet that first chord of of this song we're talking about counts place is d7 so a tritone away or a sharp 11 a sharp four away is of course a g sharp or a flat easier to think about so instead of d7 he is thinking A flat 7, A flat C, E flat, G flat. So in his idea, he's more or less playing um, two quick notes to an A flat, you know, B, C or C, C sharp, and lands on the A flat and holds it out so that that's the tritone sounding at first a little dissonant. Then Thad Jones plays F, F sharp to the middle F, the F being a blue note, so you can do that. Then he goes... D, E flat, C holds out the minor seven on the C and ends the idea walking down the horn on B flat and E flat. So out of those notes, he's outlining the tritone, parts of the tritone chord, A flat, C, E flat. 
He's playing blue notes that we can use on the blues, F, um, and that, that flat seven, the C. And so it's a great idea, and it sounds a little more dissonant than it really is because Count Basie and the rhythm section is just sticking to the to the root dominant seventh chord. And so because they're sticking there and trumpet is just um, kind of exemplifying the tritone sub sound on top, it sounds like there's a little bit of a clash, but harmonically it works because with a tritone sub, the thirds and the sevens are the same. So if we think about D7, the third is F sharp and the seven is C. If you do a tritone sub, so we're thinking A flat seven, that C is in there, C being the third of A flat. So the seven becomes the three and the, uh, the third of D seven, the F sharp becomes the seven of the A flat or G sharp seven. So because those thirds and sevenths, excuse me, <coughs> are still in there, it works. And we call that tritone substitution. Yeah, and I think one thing, yeah, that you refer to is the how the the band stays on the one. I think sometimes what you another way to go about tritone substitution is to where you can substitute the entire chord for the tritone. Um, so instead of playing, um, they're in C major. So instead of playing that C major, you could play in an F sharp chord. Um, but they don't do that here. The band is staying on the one, but the the trumpet Thad Jones is outlining that that tritone substitution, which works really well because they're on the one and he's playing. He's outlining notes from the tritone, and then, but then when they come back to the four, which is you know the in the fifth bar of the blues format, there it resolves really well because from one to four, that's very bluesy, and Thad is going tritone sub to four which is just down a half step which resolves really well so it kind of feels like two things that are being stretched apart when you play the one and the tritone sub at the same time but then like coming together when they you know they get into the the four chord of the blue section so i i love it i think it works really well here yeah it works well because of that half step movement downward g7 to g for trumpet f um uh excuse me um F sharp to F and yeah, F sharp yeah. to F in the concert key. Yeah, yeah. So that yeah, that's why it also works. Yeah, and that's one great thing about tritone sub is when you think of perfect force and you know that's a way to get from one to four in a, a cool way and kind of uh, trick your your brain instead of one going tritone sub. It like is a a different sound and a different way to resolve to four. So yeah, I I really like this. Thanks, Ken. This is actually a really really awesome question. This is a. a a cool technique um and i think it's applied really well by by thad here so awesome thanks for for getting into that uh for us max and being our kind of theoretical expert on the podcast yeah happy to help and i just want to give a shout out you know that record is on impulse records and unfortunately the week that we're recording this we heard about the passing of the uh founder of impulse records creed taylor who um, recently passed away and, and he founded Impulse Records and was well known for writing uh, or getting John Coltrane to sign on to Impulse. And Creed Taylor also helped out at, at Verve Records, bringing the bossa nova sound kind of to the forefront of, 
um, the the world stage of jazz, and he was the producer on a lot of iconic bossa nova records, including um, the track "The Girl from Ipanema." And so I just want to give a shout out to to his family and and you know Creed Taylor was an important um, player in the recording of this great music. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, condolences to his family and a shout out to him because there was yeah, I mean the bossa nova movement into jazz was was massive with Stan Getz and Jal Gilberto that you know there were just a run of like just bossa albums in as holes you know especially coming from Stan Getz so yeah definitely super impactful so good to remember the people who made that happen even if they're not players just producers or you know executives so yeah cool well let's get into our album for the week this week we've got Go by Dexter Gordon this is a gonna be a great one I'm super excited to to dive into this one so go was recorded in august of 1962 and so some history behind the album um, i'll get into briefly and i'll throw it over to max basically so this was uh, after dexter had taken kind of a year or 10 years about a decade almost off of of recording due to some personal issues uh heroin addiction and he he was doing better in life and able to kick some of that stuff so he's back and he records a run of three albums and i think this is either the second or third album i i know doing all rights on there as well um so yeah so this is one of those albums that he records when he comes back and it's it's just a masterpiece so max uh what's some of the the history behind this album well, you're right. It was I think it was the third he did for Blue Note. Um, first, it was Doing All Right, and then Dexter Calling. And, you know, Dexter Gordon is one of those key saxophonists to know. His, his, he's known for his big sound, his swing feel. Um, he was very active in the late 1940s. And like you said, he missed um, some, some real kind of stage presence in the 1950s due to a heroin addiction and some of the demons he had, but he comes back around 1960, starts playing a lot. And then Alfred Lyon says, Hey, you want to record some stuff for blue note? And he says, sure. And so this is the, the third of those. And this album go is often referred to by uh, critics as kind of Dexter's greatest album. And Dexter himself is also noted to say this was his favorite album that he recorded or the one where he was most proud of his product. So yeah. That's important to, to note. Yeah, for sure. So let's get into some of the the players on the album, the personnel. So this album features Dexter, obviously, on the tenor sax, the great Sonny Clark on piano, and then we have Butch Warren and Billy Higgins on the drums, who are both fairly young, fairly new to the scene at this time. And Dexter actually met Butch and Billy Higgins um, when they were playing on Herbie Hancock's album, Taken Off, which was Herbie Hancock's debut album. And I think they played on that just a few uh, months earlier in the summer. So that's where he met those guys and got familiar with them and, uh, you know, called up Sonny and put this, this group together. And I think they're on all three of these albums. I'm pretty sure they're on doing all right. I'm not exactly sure about that. I'm not sure either. Okay. I don't have to go back and yeah, and figure we'll that have out. to go but and look. But I think at least Sonny's on on most of them. 
I think that's right. Okay. Well, we <laughs> might be wrong. I'll, we'll go back and look. If we're wrong, we'll uh, we'll correct ourselves at a, a later point in time. But cool. So yeah. So this is a uh, um, pretty standard for the the era. It's got six tracks on it, which I really like. I I like when. Um, albums aren't aren't super long it's about the same length as soul station about 37 minutes so cool um i think max is looking up the personnel on those albums max do you have i'm trying to okay okay cool <laughs> I'm a little slow here uh give me one second let's see so it looks like on I'm doing all right. Um, he he had he did not have the same rhythm section. He had Horace Parlin on piano, George oh. Tucker on bass, Al Harewood, who um, those three are on quite a few albums, backing up players. I know they've they were used to work with uh, Stanley Turrentine as well. Yeah, few, Freddie Hubbard's players. on trumpet on that one. Yeah, Freddie Hubbard's on trumpet. Um, oh. And on that on that doing all right album. Um, I was doing all right. The title track, the Gershwin tune, that is a fantastic take uh, of that song on that record. Yeah, this whole run of of records is is really good. Oh wow, he has a completely different crew yeah. on Dexter Cullen as well. He has Kenny Drew on the piano, Paul Chambers on the bass, and Philly Joe Jones on the drums. Wow, those are all great lineups. Okay, that's for, right. I, yeah, yeah, for some I reason, I thought this run was all recorded like at a similar time, but I guess they're. These these first were these two were recorded first um, with different different groups. Yeah, it was a similar time, but it was different players. Um, I think it was either I don't know maybe Alfred Lyon who suggested, "Hey, use these younger cats and and have some fun and and see what happens." Yeah, yeah, I think the in between these albums was when he recorded that one with Herbie Hancock. So maybe that's when he met Billy and Butch and you know decided. that's right to bring those guys in awesome cool well that's interesting to know so yeah a new a new cast on this one that i don't i guess he hasn't played with before um fully you know this band so the first song on the album is entitled cheesecake and it's an original by dexter gordon and it's a great way to to start out the the album and it has such an an iconic melody and one thing that um, a theme that's going to happen a lot is uh, a two feel. This is a very common thing in jazz, but people will do it differently. And Dexter definitely does it differently than Hank Mobley, who we uh, reviewed a, a couple albums ago. So they do a two feel, but a two feel is just in the bass on the melody. And there's a four swing feel in the drums over the A section of the head. And this kind of gives the melody a more more bouncy feel to it than necessarily... Um, when Hank does it, it has a little bit different of a, like a more, not as bouncy, more of a smooth feel to it. So yeah, I, I really like this melody and super iconic and it's definitely, it's Dexter's Dexter style. So yeah, I think even before you start talking about the melody, you got to talk about the intro. Oh yeah. I love, you know, I love how, um, how he layers the instrumentation, you know, first, we're starting out with bass, then you add the the cymbal from the drums, and then the keys and sax come in, and that layering introduction technique is um, also showcased later in the album. So it's you'll you'll see that throughout the album, there's a common kind of go-to arrangement of a lot of these songs, and these are all similarly arranged in what comes next after another. So 
that's something to keep in mind too is is how key the intro is yeah yeah for sure and yeah that definitely there are a lot of techniques that like you said that are common and get you know the way that the songs are arranged the songs are different but the arrangements are similar lots of times in in these tunes yeah and this is an original and i i this one is in a minor key and sometimes you can do a little more with a minor key and be a little more imaginative so i really like that um this is one some players you know may call on the bandstand it's it's really cool aaba with only an eight bar bridge and um it kind of does the classic jazz standard technique or classic great american songbook technique where the a sections are in a minor key but the bridge is in a major key or vice versa we start in a major key and bridges in a minor key so here the bridge is kind of made up of of two five ones um but just the two fives kind of going down by step and then we end with a, a minor two five back into the a section so that's that's something keeping track keep track of is is the way the um the song is arranged and the form structure and you're right the bass is doing a two feel during those first eight bars of the 16 bar a section um and also during the melody they do a two bar break in between um the a section the second a into the bridge and he leaves that open right dexter Mm -hmm. doesn't play over that that break and I, I really like that. And also later on, when they're doing the two-bar break into the solo, he also leaves that mostly wide open and leaves the space to just be. And a lot of times, a lot of players, you know, especially if they're bop heavy, they're going to try and fill in that space with all sorts of stuff. But Dexter says, no, I'm just going to play one note and then get into my solo. And I think that's really hip. Yeah, and that's it's kind of a cliche in jazz, and if you play jazz, you've probably heard this, but there's definitely there's a saying that says it's it's more about the notes that you don't play than the notes that you do play sometimes. So I think Dexter displays that well in his use of space here. So absolutely, that's a great way to put it. So awesome. Let's get into Dexter's solo. I like I I love the the break, the two bar break, getting into a solo, and Dexter's solo here. It's just. It's fantastic. He has lots of of bop elements, which you expect from Dexter being such a great bop player, um, bebop player. Um, But he still uses, he blends that style into this song that's more of a hard bop composition. So he uses lots of moving lines, as you expect from bop, but he also uses themes and like the development of those ideas and some more soulful ideas and motifs, which I really like. And I think this solo just is such a good blend of of styles, the bebop style into some more soulful and hard bop composition. And this is just really nice. He commands your attention at all times. When Dexter's playing, you're 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 listening. You're not, you know, you're not gonna get distracted. You're gonna listen to what Dexter's playing. So it's this is a really great solo from Dexter. Yeah, Dexter has impeccable phrasing. Um, and I just want to make a couple points about his sound and his overall feel. I mentioned a little earlier, you know, he's known for his swing feel. It's, it's so fat. He takes up the whole beat and then some <laughs> with, <laughs> with how he's feeling the beat and, you know, uh, an untrained ear might say he's kind of behind the beat, but no, he's just swinging hard, yeah. uh, 
and, and and he's in there and he's grooving. His sound is also very um, noticeable and very recognizable. It's a fat tone. It's commanding. Yet he's also smooth with a lot of his lines. He goes in and out of, of all ranges of the horn really well. And he's just got a really big commanding sound, but it's not overbearing. And so, of course, his solo is going to really display that really well. And I also want to say during his playing of the melody, he displays that really well. And the thing about Dexter that I love so much is the thing to keep track of is the way he ends his phrases. Even when he's ending melodic lines on his melody, he's doing it almost a different way every time. I cannot predict how he's going to end his phrase. You know, a lot of players will have a go-to. I'm always going to do a little vibrato. I'm always going to do kind of a shorter note. But Dexter plays around with how he ends his phrases. Sometimes it's vibrato. Sometimes it's straight tone with no vibrato and just a big fat note. Sometimes it's a fall or a bend with his lip going down. And it's important to, to note that because I think a lot of times players, especially sax players or horn players, really focus when they're practicing and trying to learn this music with how they start ideas and going from one idea to the next, but they lack um, emphasis in their practice when focusing on how to end phrases. They are not as um, uh, practiced or um, deliberate about the ending of their phrases. And Dexter is a lesson in how to be more deliberate when you're ending your phrases. Yeah, that's a definitely a great point. I think it speaks to Dexter's technique and just how good of a, a saxophone player he is. I mean, he's just such a master of, of the horn. And I think that's definitely a great thing to think about. I think some players might not think about finishing the you know like they play the the meat of the lick and then they just finish it in whatever style dexter he's going to finish it out the whole way and in a thoughtful way every time and maybe a different way so the use of vibrato or long or short phrasing at the end um and the releases i think that's that's a great thing and a great thing to pick up on there max and something that people can think about is you know when you're playing lines finish them all the way out don't you know don't just play the meat and then end it you know short just because you think it's over you know right and and with the way dexter ends um his phrases another thing to keep in mind is how long the note is a lot of times players will go you know something like dot da ba do ba dot dot and then dexter would go bop ba ba do ba dot 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 you know that yep. that the length of the note is just fat and and that is a very dexter thing to do that not everyone does, and that's something that people could 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 learn learn from and, and put into their playing. A couple of licks to keep in mind that that Dexter does in this particular solo at the 140 mark, um, a minute 40 in, he he kind of plays around with the classic "Cry Me a River" lick, which over a minor chord. You know, we're thinking two one five minor three two one da da ba da ba da. And then over a dominant chord, it's it's different um, pitches, but it's the same idea. So here, he does that three or four times in a row, but a different way, kind of each time he does it. Also at the 226 and 240 mark, he plays um, similar ideas over the chord. He'll do uh, one idea 
for the notes in one chord. And then in the next chord, he'll do the same idea, but change the notes, but keep the same intervals or the same idea. And that's a good go-to practice when uh, you're improvising. Um, so he just he just outlines some of those ideas really well in this solo. Yeah, and that's definitely a, a common Dexter technique is to take a uh, an idea and kind of move that idea around the form and maybe play it over multiple um, chords in the form. So he'll take the idea, he'll play it, and then if they're going up, whatever the next uh, step is in the, the chord structure, he's going to play it over that too. And he's just... It's really it's a cool technique and it's definitely something that Dexter uh, calls on pretty often, which is cool. Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. What do you think about um, Sonny Clark's solo? Yeah, I really like Sonny Clark's solo on this one. It's it's your prototypical Sonny Clark. It's great, um, very melodic. Um, you know the lines, the the way that Sonny plays a lot of times is very linear which is different than a lot of piano players um so i really i like his style it's, it's different than other players and it's unique and you can tell it's sunny when he's playing it almost a lot of times sounds like he's playing a like a monophonic instrument as if he's playing a horn so his lines are more structured like horn lines but on the piano so that's definitely something that i i like on on sunny solos and this is this is a, a great typical sunny solo yeah, he reminds me a little bit of Bud Powell. Yep. You know, very right hand, just lines, lines for days, really trying to be a horn player. Whereas somebody like a Errol Garner or Oscar Peterson, you know, they are really in there um, doing chords and, and playing with the rhythm more and, and doing more than, than one note at a time a lot of the time. Yeah, and he, to the other extreme, like a Milt Buckner, I know he's a great uh, organ player, but Milt Buckner, when he plays piano, it's like block chords. He'll play a melody with block chords all around the piano, and that's just like the complete opposite of what Sonny, Sonny does a lot of times. It's just the very linear right hand, linear notes, not a lot of chords, you know. So it's it's awesome. I, I love Sonny's style. It's different. Um, it's definitely something that piano players can learn from. Um is being able to develop lines and not rely on chords as much, you know? So that's yeah. right. And I've, I've transcribed some of Sonny Clark's lines before, uh, cause it's just so, you know, transmittable from what he's doing to a saxophone, you know, to a horn. I exactly. guess he's, he's mostly doing note to note to note to note. So I'm, I'm getting that line in my head as I'm transcribing him, Yeah, which is, Whereas Which is you, harder to do with most other piano players. Yeah, you couldn't do that with Oscar Peterson. You couldn't take what Oscar's playing and then put it on, you know, be like, I'm going to transcribe this for the saxophone. That would make no sense. So <laughs> that is a cool thing yeah. about Sonny and, you know, kind of what makes him unique. Yeah, the, the other thing I would say about this solo and what goes on is bringing in, you know, what the rest of the rhythm section is doing. Billy Higgins on drums and Butch Warren. Uh, they're both swinging cats. They're both great. I just feel like sometimes during Sonny's solo, not only on this track, but on some of the other ones, Billy Higgins, the way he's playing his snare drum, you know, he's doing kind of free, freehand uh, traditional grip, but it's, it's very rhythmic and it works well behind Dexter, but when it's just Sonny Clark, it kind of, the way he's hitting the snare drum so much, it's a little distracting. He's just hitting it too much for me, and it's taking away a little bit of Sonny Clark's solo. 
Yeah, I can definitely agree with that. I have one note about Billy Higgins playing. Um, I definitely can see what you're saying. Yeah, it can be a little busy at times and a little bit overshadowing of what Sonny's doing. But one thing that um, to note, you kind of said this, is Billy Higgins, he plays somewhat loose and free, but he's always in the pocket, um, which is a cool thing to kind of a point to talk about is you for newer players, especially when you're doing swing and a swing feel, is that the tempo doesn't always have to be perfect like you're playing to a metronome. And swing doesn't work with a metronome because that's the 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 point of swing is like it's not so you know, it's swung. That's a point. So with swing, it can kind of be a little looser and it can ebb and flow as long as you're in the pocket. And that kind of gives it the emotion sometimes of the swing feel. And I think that's something that, that Higgins does really well. And he's able to kind of be loose and free with his playing, but still super swinging and super deep in the pocket. Yeah, that's right. Um, it's, it's definitely valid. And, uh, you know, we're, with swing, we're pushing and pulling the beat. Mm-hmm. So it's not that we don't want a metronome, but it's that it's okay you know, to speed up or to, to, to really swing something harder than you would if you were, you know, strictly wanting to, to play with the click, you know, it's, it's, you don't want to always have the click in your ear. If you're in the recording studio, if you're doing a, a straight ahead jazz recording, you know, you want that swing to, to happen naturally. And for that to happen, you have to be a little, little, um, free and interactive with the players you're playing with yeah and i think that's the the important distinction is like the players are aware of like sometimes when we'll be on a gig and we're swinging harder like it might speed up a little bit but we're aware that we're driving the tempo you there's a difference between that and like letting the tempo drag or something like that which is like not intentional that you you'll hear players of like different genres even like rock or whatever genre you're playing you'll hear players start to drag sometimes that's not what we're not like saying it's okay to do that but in jazz and in swing that's something that happens a lot is the there's more push and pull to the to the rhythm than in than in other genres so it's okay to be a little bit looser as long as you're you're still in the pocket and the band is you know moving together so yeah, that's yep. a, definitely a, a good way to, to look at. One thing, um, the last thing I have on this this tune is it kind of, this is kind of going back to Billy Higgins playing, is it kind of has the feeling of a, a live recording, like something that would be recorded with a live audience in a club. Um, and I think that's really cool. It's not perfect. Uh, there's a lot of things about this album that aren't perfect, but I think that's kind of what makes it great is it kind of has a lot of emotion to it and a lot of rawness to it. That's really nice. And the rhythm section is, is free and loose at times, but it's, it's, they're ever swinging and they're always in the pocket. So it's, it's nice. It's, it's cool. It's um, a little bit different than some other albums that are maybe a little bit more buttoned up. Yeah. And you can definitely tell that on the head out. Um, when they're transitioning from an A section to a bridge and bridge back to a, and, and to the tag ending, it seems like Dexter, he gets to the bridge, you know, on time. And then the rhythm section kind of catches up to him two or three beats later. And so it's like, oh, we're on the bridge now. I thought we were doing the tag ending and not doing the bridge on the head out. Oh, shoot. <laughs> yeah. And so, they, you know, you can kind of hear that in the drums, especially. I, I feel like maybe 
they weren't aware that they were doing the bridge on the head out. And so they were two and a half to three beats late coming in with, with Dexter, but because Dexter's sound is so big and, and you know, he's on it, nothing fell apart. Everything was driving. It was still cool. It was still in the pocket and it was still together. Yeah, and they're great players, so they're not, you know, they're going to catch on to what, you know, what Dexter's doing. I think it kind of has a feel of if maybe, like, like I was saying, like a live, like the guys show up to a gig and they haven't really rehearsed all that much, and Dexter's just like 30 minutes before the gig is just like, all right, we're kind of going to do this same kind of, uh, like way to write all the songs we're gonna like do this just follow me we'll be good and that's kind of what it feels like is they're just like let's follow dexter like and at points they're like oh man oh bridge this that you know like (laughs) no tag okay you know so i i think that's kind of it kind of what it feels like is almost like this wasn't super rehearsed it doesn't seem like this is something that they spent months working on it seems like dexter had all these tunes written brought these guys in and was like hey this is what it is and then they got to it so yeah um, two other things I want to add about Dexter and his solo on this track is he actually takes a second solo after the piano solo. And you'll notice that he does it a few times on this album. It's kind of the go-to arrangement. Like I said earlier, there's a similar arrangement with each of these. And I kind of like that. It's kind of a swing-oriented idea to do. Um, Dexter has some some roots in, in the swing era, the transition from swing into bebop. And so something like that, you know, illustrates that really well. Um, he kind of, I, I was expecting him to maybe trade eights with the drums or trade fours on that second solo, but no, he just does a, a full chorus second solo. And, then, and yeah, yeah, and I really like that. Um, and then exactly uh, how they end it, I like how Dexter does not end with adding any extra licks once they hit a final chord, you know, a lot of times horn players will will add a few ideas, whether it's based on the, you know, the the root or the nine or or some little diminished thing or something falling down the horn. You know, after that final chord hits, Dexter does not do that. He just lands on a final note and that's it. He doesn't add anything to it. I think that's a great choice. It's very clean. And it proves you don't have to always add something to the final chord. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Sometimes the song is ending. It's, you know, you can just let it end. A lot of sax players or horn horn players in general, and maybe even, you know, piano players, when a song's ending, they'll feel like they have to add something to the end. And maybe Dexter shows here, like, you can just let the song be over sometimes. And when you get to that that final chord, just let that be the, the ending. So, yeah, it's cool that, that Dexter does that here and doesn't feel the need to to add more more on to the end. Cool. Well, let's get into the second track on the album, which is entitled, I guess I'll Hang My Tears Out to Dry. This is a ballad. It's a jazz standard. It's a very well-known and, and played jazz standard mostly by singers throughout history. Um, some popular renditions of it are by Frank Sinatra, Sarah Vaughn, Mel Torme, but also gets covered by horn players and you know more straight-ahead players. Uh, the Cannonball Adderley Quartet did a, a rendition of this song. So, yeah, Max, do you have anything about the, the history of, of this one? Yeah, it, it is kind of a well-known song to cover by singers. Um, it's originally a song from 1944, And it was written by Jules Stein, who was kind of one of these great American songbook composers, um, Jewish immigrant composers. 
of kind of the early to mid 20th century that were so instrumental in, you know, composing kind of a songbook that jazz players could pull from and and put their spin on it and produce records from it and it would be recognizable. So Jules Stein is kind of one of those composers. And this particular song is kind of known as a torch song. And a torch song is an is a sentimental love song that laments a lost love. And it was uh, in the show Glad to See You by Joel Stein and Sammy Kahn. And if you don't know, Joel Stein is also best known for um, the music to Gypsy and Funny Girl. He also wrote the song Three Coins in the Fountain and the Christmas classic Let It Snow, Let It Snow, Let It Snow. Um, so there's a lot of history with this song. And this is for this version is kind of the instrumental version um, in the history of, of jazz recording of this song. Yeah. And it's it's on this tune. It's very evident that the ballads are a forte of of Dexter. He's. His playing is is soft and lyrical and has this sense of vulnerability to it. I guess that kind of speaks to this sentimental love song. Like there's a feeling of vulnerability in Dexter's playing, but it's still so so commanding. Like it it can be soft and and lyrical, but still so commanding. And that's Dexter's so so good at playing ballads. So I love the the way that that Dexter plays this one. So yeah, he's definitely on a list of of the top players you would think of when you're thinking of who is really good at a ballad who can express a ballad you know the list would be some others would be ben webster um john coltrane was great at ballads in his own way you know gene ammons um some cats like ike quebec Mm -hmm. really good at ballad playing you know herschel evans uh coleman hawkins a lot of the swing era cats um and even players like Sonny Stitt, even though he's very noty, he's also really good at, at phrasing during in a ballad setting. So Dexter is is so great with ballads because of his sound, because of his vibrato. I love what he does on this track, especially. I love how they open, right? They open kind of rubato and open. And then Dexter comes in with a with a walking line up the horn. And the band comes in right together on B1 so effortlessly. You know, it, it's amazing how how well just everything molds together. Yeah, I love that the way the line that Dexter plays that leads into the head. It is just, it feels like the most perfect transition from that opening rubato section into the melody and then in on the one. That's, I, I love that. It's just, it really stood out to me in this track. Yeah, I also want to say he uses more vibrato on this one uh, than the previous track, probably because it's a ballad, and it expresses a lot of emotion when you do that. And the way he does it, it sounds so beautiful. He showcases his kind of buttery-sounding low end of the horn a lot on this track. Um, just the, the, the expansiveness and the expression of Dexter's sound and approach fits so well that it's no wonder, you know, this is kind of the version to go to for this song on the tenor saxophone. Yeah, for sure. And one thing that um I want to touch on on this because this this song is all about Dexter, 
But one thing that I I notice is Sonny's comping on this track is just so nice and super thoughtful. He adds a lot to Dexter and what Dexter is doing, but he never overshadows what what Dexter is playing. And I think this is uh, a sign of the brilliance of, of Sonny Clark. And he's just such so good at comping. And we'll see more of like his his brilliance in this later on the album. But I love what Sonny's doing here, and his his comping just complements Dexter's playing so so well. Yeah, Sunday's playing is great. I also want to give a, a shout out to the bass player, Butch Warren, who does really well on this track. He goes in and out of playing kind of in that two feel ballad playing where you're on the, the one and three. And then sometimes he'll go into, you know, a four B quarter note feel or he'll do it for half a bar or, you know, he's in and out of that two and four feel on the on the ballad. And that is much harder to do than than one would think. And Butch Warren does it really well on this track. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Butch is his playing is is really nice on this track, and I think just the rhythm section does a really good job in general on this, and um, the way that they accompany Dexter. Uh, one thing we talk about um, Dexter's use of, of quotes and themes and ideas uh, at three o three, they play this uh, up and down lick which is a chromatic lick and it gets brought back a few times in the album. But I, this is the first time that we hear that lick and they'll both uh, Dexter and Sonny will go back and quote this lick a couple times. So just something to, to note there. And it's one of the licks that stands out to me from this album. I always think of it when I think of, of this album. And so, yeah, there are a lot of common licks that are used quite a bit over and over again in different tracks and in different ways by different people. And that's another commonality between all the songs. It's not only the arrangements or the way they're addressing the tunes, but, you know, a lot of the ideas they're using when they're improvising are kind of consistent, um, but used in different ways as well. And I also want to say that I really appreciate they're keeping the ballad feel on this tune. Sometimes when players do a ballad, they will go into a double time feel or they'll do something funky with the bridge. But here they just keep that slower tempo and they can do that because of Dexter's dexterity, (laughs) no pun intended, but because of his sound, his commanding presence and what he's doing with the horn, you don't have to go into double time. You don't have to change up anything. Yeah, and I think this is um, a good thing for people to kind of take note of is sometimes with ballads, people think like they need to make them not boring because it's a ballad. But here, the band just lets Dexter shine, and that's that. That's what gives this song. That's what makes it great. They don't feel like they need to overcomplicate it. No one's doing too much. They're just letting Dexter shine on this ballad, and it's really beautiful. And it doesn't have to, you don't have to do something crazy in a ballad. You can just let it be a ballad. And that's what Max is saying. And that's a great, great point. Like to, to just let it, let it be what it is. Yeah. And then again, at the very end, Dexter Gordon does not add any licks after the final chord. And especially on a ballad, if it were me, I normally would. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I do something like, um, you know, triplet sixteenths, up on each note of the um, the major nine chord or something, go up and down the horn real quick. But he doesn't do that, and that proves you don't need to. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, this is a great track. Um, 
And so it's one of two ballads. We're going to get another ballad. So this is just the, the first of two. Let's get into the third track on the album, which is a tune entitled Second Balcony Jump. Max, give us uh, some history of, of this tune. Yeah, another great aspect of this album is we get an insight into the roots of Dexter Gordon. This album screams Dexter. That's another great thing about, you know, why probably he himself, Dexter himself, revered it so much. And so this track is from the Billy Eckstein band, Billy Eckstein and his orchestra, which um, was a group started in the mid-1940s. Billy Eckstein was a singer, a vocalist, very smooth singer, great performer. I think he sang up until the early 1990s. And Dexter Gordon was in his band um, between, I don't know specific years, but kind of the late 40s, there were a slew of outstanding musicians that were included in Billy Eckstein's band. We had people like Gene Ammons, um, Miles Davis, Sonny Stitt, uh, Fats Navarro, some really key players in kind of the history of this music. And Dexter Gordon was also in there. So it's so, I don't know, it, it's just so perfect that this song would be included in his tune selection for the album. So it's a song he's very familiar with, and it's a song he's played, and it just screams Dexter on Dexter's album. Yeah, yeah. This is it's definitely cool to get all the this is kind of just an insight into Dexter, this album feels like. And so we're getting lots of different um elements of what made his playing what it is. So yeah. Um one thing to note about the the head of this one is you get another two feel in the the A section of the head. It has that that bouncy feel to it again. And um one thing to note is that the drums they do the the four feel still, even though the bass is doing the, the two feel on the A sections, and the drums is doing the that that shuffle on the hi hat instead of the ride in the A sections, which kind of helps give it that bounce. And then when they go to the B sections, they're you know doing a four feel, and he's on the on the ride, you know, giving it that classic swing feel. So yeah, just a, a similar theme, and you know, the arrangement on this album, you know, there's lots of similar ideas, and so that's kind of you know, a commonality in this, this album here in the, in the head. Yeah. And on the, you know, when we're talking about the form and the structure, it is a B flat rhythm changes, which is a song form in a key B flat that, you know, all jazz players should know. And so that's good to keep note of, um, you know, if you're learning, progressing, playing, this might be a tune you would want to call uh it, it's in the history it, it's it's cool it's got it's got a melody on the bridge which which some rhythm changes don't um which dexter played uh the first head in um so so it's just a, a good song to be aware of and to know about yeah and the change in the field between the the a sections into the bridge it's good to note like you said i also appreciate um the way Dexter comes into a solo and he, he just kind of comes in hot. He also shows some very swing era elements in the solo. You know, it's good to note about Dexter Gordon that a lot of his playing is bop oriented, 
but he also has some swing characteristics. And what I mean by that is kind of the go-to practices that swing era players of the 1930s and early 40s used and um, pulled from in their playing. And it's a little different than some of the bop players. It's usually more rhythmic. It's usually kind of playing with with um, melody more. And, and so he does it in the solo right at the 207 mark. He's doing kind of a rhythmic um, false fingering with his sound, which is you're playing a note on the horn and then you're moving some fingers that don't change the note to a different note. It just changes the way the note sounds and the tone. And so he's very cool when he does that. And he does that in the solo. Another thing to, to note is for me, like you said, Sonny Clark's comping on an earlier track. I think Sonny Clark's comping on this track is golden. Yeah, yeah, my notes on this, it's just like, it says, Sonny Clark's comping is so damn good. That's what I have written for this. And it's, he just, yeah, he's so good at, at comping. And he picks up on what Dexter's playing so well. And he's able to, like, sometimes he'll pick up on a lick that Dexter's playing. And he'll finish the, the idea with him. Or he'll, you know, comp based on what Dexter's playing. He's just so good at listening and, and comping and highlighting what Dexter is playing. And I, I love that. Um, one thing though I want to add to the Dexter solo is he quotes, uh, Mona Lisa, which is a, another standard, um, most famous, I think by Nat King Cole. Uh, he quotes that at the 54 second mark. And it's just another quote. Dexter brings out all the quotes in this. He's kind of a master of quotes. So yeah. Um, one thing I like, uh, is when Dexter ends his solo and Sonny's, comes into his solo Dexter the way that Sonny comes into a solo is by quoting Dexter's final line of his solo and they runs with that idea so I think that's a it's a pretty common jazz practice but it fits really well here with the way that Sonny's comping and so it's a, a cool use of that technique here by by Sonny yeah it's a cool thing to to note especially as a player a good way tra- to transition from one soloist to the next is that the new soloist plays the last line of the previous soloist and and that smoothly goes from <laughs> one solo to another it's, it's kind of like passing the baton yes as, as i've heard you put it before and so this is a great example of of that going on um and during the piano solo again here my quibbles with billy higgins snare drum are coming back <laughs> and i just think he, he's just a little too busy behind sonny clark's solo on this yeah and one thing um sonny clark's solo here he does he has great space and he has really good ideas and i dig what he's playing here although i wish that sonny developed this solo a little bit more this solo kind of leaves me wanting more um i'm not going to question his thought process into playing the solo, but for me i just felt like i was a little unfulfilled with this so i was kind of wanting more from from sunny on this one yeah yeah i hear that a couple of the other ones i i get more movement and um just greater range yeah uh from him than this one uh and then after the piano solo dexter comes back in with the with the second tenor saxophone solo and so he's doing you know what he did earlier in a track um he's doing that same sort of arrangement here and 
again, this during the second solo, those, those swing era sensibilities of Dexter Gordon's roots come out um, right at the six six oh three mark, where he's playing one note rhythmically, and it's with just a huge fat tone, and he's kind of playing with marcato articulation, and again, it's kind of that one note rhythmic idea that a lot of swing era players used. And so he brings that out in this. And I just love all the elements that he pulls from when he's soloing. Yeah, for sure. And one thing that um, I like about this tune is the ending of this tune is instead of going back to the head, the normal head, the melody, they do kind of a, a tag outro over the A sections. And then for the B sections, they do an eight bar drum break, which is cool. And then back to the tag over the A and then they'll repeat that a few times into uh, a lick. And I think this is really cool. They they bring in a tag outro or like a shout kind of thing, but they keep the form of the song. So they do the, the tag twice, then the B section is covered by the drums, and then back to the A section. So they're still keeping the form, which is really cool. And then the final lick that they play is known as the the circus lick. The but instead of going completing the whole lick like you'd normally hear, hear it played they just end on the seventh so they go bet you know and you'd expect it to, to finish to go bet but it doesn't it it just ends on that that seventh you know so that that was a cool thing and it's a kind of a it's almost like Dexter being kind of playful you know in the way that they you know he brings in that lick that kind of playful lick but then doesn't finish it yeah, there's definitely a sense of humor in some of Dexter's playing, and that is a good example of it. Um, yeah, August 27th marks the 60th anniversary of this album, and we are still waiting on the resolution of that lick. <laughs> We're Ugh. still waiting for that lick to resolve, and it will never be finished, and that is just so golden. I just love it. Yeah, yeah. It's like Dexter's like, he's just rolling over, just like, yep. Yeah got him <laughs> yeah i want to clarify something when you earlier said tag you're basically talking about the shout chorus that they do on the head out yeah okay yeah you're right they're they're keeping the form and the drums do an eight bar yeah um, i mean tag is in like they're they're it's not like a melody they're playing the same line repeatedly you know right yeah right instead of it's not like a melody over the a section it's just the a, a line that gets played repeatedly over the a section yeah, it's kind of like a shout chorus. Yeah, a shout chorus, yeah. Um, okay, yeah, that's right. Cool. Well, um, let's get into the fourth track on the album, which is the prolific jazz standard, Love for Sale. It comes from the Cole Porter songbook. And yeah, this is this is just a, um, it's another song from the, the Great American Songbook uh, written in 1930. And yeah, this is an awesome tune. And one thing that I like, it gets played so many times. This song gets covered all the time and gets um, played by many, many famous jazz musicians. But one thing I really like about this is that Dexter takes this and instead of doing it in a typical straight ahead or swing style, they do 
the head in a bossa nova style which i have never heard before on this tune and i don't think is you know maybe people when they cover this version they'll do it now but it's definitely innovative by dexter it's a risk that he takes but one that i feel pays off really well and he's able to do really beautifully so i think that's one reason that this rendition is different from others and stands stands out from others yeah the the change in feel is um refreshing and it really adds a lot to this tune. One thing to keep in mind about this track, similar to the first one, the Dexter original, is the way they start. So they do an introduction where they're layering instruments again. But this time they're reversing the order a little bit. Instead of starting with bass, they're starting with drums, and then the bass, then the keys, then the head with Dexter coming in. And so that layering introductory technique is displayed here once again. Yeah, and it makes sense to start with the drums because it is a Latin rhythm. So you, they're going to give you that clave rhythm first with the drums and then layer on top of that. So I think that that choice makes a lot of sense to do drums first instead of starting with maybe the bass or the piano or something. So, yeah. And um, so after the melody, when they go into the solo, the bossa nova is gone and it's full swing ahead, which is... It you know which is awesome and Max I'll let you get into uh to Dexter's solo a little bit. Yeah, I I really like how they just swing on the solo. Um, there's a great recording of Wave, the bossa nova tune, um, written by Antonio Carlos Jobim. That's by Eddie Lockjaw Davis, tenor player, and he does a similar thing where you know they do the head bossa, but then on the solo they just swing their butts off. And that's what they do here. And I really like that. Um, so on Dexter's solo, you know, there's just so much going on. You mentioned the kind of chromatic lick up and down that was uh, showcased a little earlier. Well, it comes back in this solo. Um, usually we do it from the third or the major seven. And so he's doing that at minute marker 209. Um, at minute marker 216, he's playing a lick and repeating it, but changing the notes for the next chord. So he's really good at doing that, doing one idea in one chord and then doing the same idea in another, but just changing the notes, keeping the intervals the same. Um, you know, similar harmonic movement and rhythm throughout those examples. Dexter has really great range during his solo. He's using all parts of the horn really well. At um, 30, excuse me, 338 to 346, those swing era sensibilities come back in this solo as well. He's doing kind of one of the prime examples of a swing era saxophone technique. I kind of call it the wobble or the warble. It's kind of where you're, you're fingering middle E flat on the horn, but you lift your third finger on your left hand, so you're lifting that G fingering, and so you're basically going back and forth between B flat and G. And so you're doing some intense vibrato while you're fingering that. And that creates this kind of wobble technique. So he shows that in the solo. Um, and he does kind of these rhythmic hits repeated. And there's some rhythmic call and response with Billy Higgins. And that's a very swing era technique um, to, to play with the rhythm and to do those different sounds on the instrument. Yeah. Um, there's one part of this solo that's, that sticks out to me. One thing that I caught that I really liked 
was um, there's a use of a, a motif or an idea at uh, two minutes and 23 seconds. And then the way that he takes this idea and then kind of melds it back into the the changes in the next two bars is really an awesome technique. Um, I really like what he's doing there. And then getting into to Sonny Clark's solo, this Sonny Clark solo is exactly what I was wanting on the last one. There's just really great uh, development of ideas here. It's very line oriented, like we spoke about. He was really good. So this is, you know, he's doing what he does best. And but what he does here is he'll he does this very line oriented um, playing on his right hand. But then he's going to insert some random more bluesy, maybe starting to get into some chordal, but not like block chords, just maybe two or three notes, you know, but some bluesy licks in there, too. So I think he is able to develop the solo really well that way. And he's just swinging really, really hard on this one. So I, I love Sonny Clark's solo here. Yeah, this one's a little more dynamic than some of the others. And here he does start to do kind of more two or three note ideas um, in between some of the lines he's doing. And so that that just creates a little more texture, a little more diversity in uh, Sonia Clark's solo on this track. Yeah, yeah. And one thing that we're going to get again, and this is we're going to keep talking about this, is Dexter, after Sonny Clark's solo, he's going to do another solo. And I think one thing that's interesting to note is when Dexter comes back in um, on his second solo, he quotes the Mexican hat dance. And I think that's interesting that he does that when they're playing this song in a, a Latin feel. I feel like that's probably intentional from Dexter and speaks to that that kind of humorous, like, you know, I'm going to throw this in there, you know, and it just kind of fits well with the song. So, yeah, that's that's a cool, cool thing that Dexter does there. Yeah, second solo chorus for saxophone. I love it. <laughs> I can't get enough. <laughs> um, on the head out, I want to note that at the minute marker 645, it kind of seems like the rhythm section was thinking that they were going to be headed to a trading section or, or a change of feel back, um, you know, to that kind of Latin groove or something. But, but Dexter doesn't go there. He only wanted to play the last a section of the head on the way out. And I, it's, it sounded like the rhythm section thought they were going to do, you know, kind of a full, um, a, a full chorus on the head out, but they don't. Yeah. I think this is one of the, the, probably the most obvious miscommunication on the album. And one thing to note is like in this day and age today, like if a jazz album were getting recorded, we're so focused on like perfection that this might not even make an album, but I kind of like the fact that they keep it. It kind of gives this album that kind of raw emotional feel to it. Like, they didn't feel like they needed to go back and record it. This take was good. They miscommunicated. Oh, well, they got back. You know, it's not like it fell apart. Like, and I, I kind of appreciate that from this. We've all, we've all been there, you know, he got back into it and that's, that's what matters most. And so it's, it's kind of a, a cool thing that I don't, you don't get that much these days and you get a lot more in recordings back, back then, you know, especially recordings where they're just going to kind of do everything live and, and roll with it, you know? Yeah, it definitely illustrates the human effect you know we're all doing our best <laughs> we can't be perfect all the time yeah and it um, doesn't music isn't perfect it doesn't have to be perfect 
That's right. That's right. So that that is a raw quality of this. That there's a couple instances where that happens, and everything's fine. Not only fine, it swings hard. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's great. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And then yeah, so they go one time through the melody, and then they fade out on that that bossa nova feel to to end this tune. Um, so cool. So let's get into the fifth track on the album, which is the second ballad on the album entitled "Where Are You." Um, let's see, Max, give us a little bit of, of history on, on this track. Yeah, there's a couple of things to say about this song. Um, firstly, it was kind of a pops pop song in the 1930s <clears throat> written by Jimmy McHugh. And if you don't know Jimmy McHugh, he is a monumental composer. He's credited for writing over 500 songs, including on the sunny side of the street and exactly like you, which are tunes I really like to play and, and love to cover. Um, Jimmy McHugh was also inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in the 1970s. And so he's just a very prolific American composer. And we would not have a lot of songs without him. Um, there's also really two other great saxophone versions of this song one by ben webster on the album soulville uh from 1957 which also has the oscar peter oscar peterson trio with him on and that's a great version and then the second one is from sonny rollins that he recorded on the album the bridge um in 1962 and that is the same year as this album go so we had two saxophone covers (laughs) of where are you that came out on two monumental albums in the same year. And I think that's really cool to note. Um, It's, uh, you know, it's just, just a great commonality between players playing a lot of the same tunes, but doing them in different ways. And it's good to listen to those other players and how they do it. Yeah, definitely. And I think this, this ballad, is the second ballad on the album, which doesn't always, most of the times you're going to get one ballad on an album in a jazz album. And I, I love that they do too here. This one has a different feeling than I, I guess I'll hang my tears out to dry. Um, his tone is a little different on this and even gets into a little more, maybe like belting at times and more opens up his sound a little bit more. And, and I really like, um, I like the difference in this, this, uh, this, ballad to the first ballad max what do you what do you think about about dexter's sound here and and his solo on this one his solo is really good i i do think he's uh a little more raw maybe with how he's approaching this solo um there's a a cool lick i really like at uh, minute marker 321 it's a it's kind of a ballad lick I've heard him use before on an album called The Chase, where I think it's mostly a live album and it's it's Dexter and also Gene Ammon sits in on on some of the tunes and also the vocalist very underrated underappreciated vocalist and alto player Vi Red is on that album The Chase. But anyway, there's a, a lick he did in Polka Dots and Moonbeams from that album that I copped from him. Um, it goes, he starts on the five and he goes five, one, six, four, three, two. And he does that 
on this track as well. And I, I really like that particular lick. It's really useful on ballads. I also love that there are two ballads on this album. Um, it screams Dexter Gordon once again. And I'm still always guessing on how Dexter is going to end his melodic phrasing. To vibrato or not to vibrato? That is the <laughs> question. <laughs> and I don't know which one he's going to do. It's up to him. He's also really smooth um, when he's kind of ripping up the horn to a melody note coming from the bottom up. And he oftentimes does a lot of short falls from what kind of one clear deliberate note to a note either a third or a fourth down while moving up the horn. Um, this is kind of in minute marker 233. He kind of hints at double time with his lick at 248. It's like he's kind of playing double time, but I almost expect the band to go into double time right after he starts playing that, and they don't. So that's kind of a, a gotcha <laughs> that I really like. Um, yeah, so that's kind of what I got from Dexter. I also really liked some killer improv lines that occur in Sonny Clark's solo on the bridge on this one. Yeah, I, I really like kind of the contrast from Dexter to Sonny. So Dexter plays, he blows over the, the A sections of this, and then Sonny takes a solo on the bridge. So that's kind of how they they format this this uh, the solos on this, which is cool, and I really like the contrast in Sonny's solo to Dexter. I think it's um he's playing a little different in the lines that he's playing, and um I I just really like it. I think Sonny does a really good job here to kind of give the bridge a different feel than than the A sections of of what Dexter was playing. So I really like the the emotional feel of this one. Uh, I think it's really well played by these guys. Yeah, and on this one, just like in Love for Sale, on the head out, um, they only play the last A. Yeah. So Dexter, Dexter, you know, does the melody on the last A to end the head out here. Um, and on this final chord that they play, Dexter finally adds some notes. <laughs> <laughs> um, not too many, but, you know, just enough. And the last sound of the record uh, on this track is the kind of abode elongated note by the upright bass. And that's kind of the last thing you hear on this song. And I think that's so clever. It's so final and it's such a sultry sound. I just got a really good feeling listening, listening to the, the way they ended on that final note. And all you hear is that kind of that bass bowing away and finally finishing the tune. Yeah, yeah, I love the the bow on the bass to end. I think that's an awesome, awesome technique to use to to end this this song and a really emotional song. And it feels like that kind of draws it all to a close really well. The texture of of that. Um. So, yeah, a great ballad, different from the first one. Very feels like a little more raw and emotional on this one, but a, a great tune. So let's get into the final tune on the album, which is entitled Three O'clock in the Morning." Yeah, um, this is probably the oldest song. This is the oldest song on the record that existed. And it was first published in 1919. Mm. So we're talking 1919 here. Um, originally by an Ar Argentinian composer, Julian or Julian Robledo, R-O-B-L. 
L-E-D-O. And the lyrics uh, of the song were written by Theodora Morse, also known as Dorothy Terrace. And so Dorothy Terrace was kind of her pseudonym, um, kind of a stage name. She wrote a lot of songs alongside her husband, Theodore Morse. And her and her husband were one of the earliest examples of kind of husband and wife songwriting duos. And so this song was originally in 3-4. It's a waltz. And it was kind of known as the waltz song with chimes. And so the there's also a, a monumental recording from Paul Whiteman and his orchestra um, from the early 1920s, I believe 1922. And that recording kind of made this song a pop song, kind of brought the song to the to the forefront of pop culture in the early 20s. Yeah, um, I love this song. It starts out with the, a bell theme um into the head it's uh it's like you'd hear on like an old time doorbell the which is cool um yeah those yeah those bell chime door sounds are are a part of i think the 1922 recording if not they they have been used in association with the song before and those bell chimes are from what we call the Westminster Quarters or the Westminster Chimes. And so those were originally used for bells on clock towers. So I believe the bell that's called Big Ben Mm. in London, England, I think some of the pitches they do are those pitches that you just sang that they use to introduce a song. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely... A cool way to start the song and the song has a very fun feeling to it a very fun element to it i think that's kind of a playful way to to start the song and i really i like that um i like that a lot so yeah so they kind of get away from the bebop on this one and explore a little bit more of like a blues sounds riffs and and lines on this track yeah also the use of those bells is reminding me about miles's uh, recording of if i were a bell from the album relaxing with miles um, relaxing with the miles davis quintet they do the same thing on if i were a bell so it's not uncommon to use that lick um, just in general um yeah like i said it was originally a waltz here they're doing it in four i think um dexter solo there's some really great single bar ideas you know kind of one one bar idea that that you could pull from as a player to to incorporate into your playing um it's important to note i think the form is a 16 bar form um and during dexter solo there's some swing era elements that come out again kind of at the 152 mark um this this one reminds me of of what he played at the 207 mark in second balcony jump also later on at 221 there's a song quote i couldn't think of the song in my head but there are so many quotes that dexter puts into his playing it's very hard to keep track of all of them and unlike some other players like johnny griffin or gene ammons or sonny stitt you know a lot of those 
kinds of cats they'll they'll um they'll put in you know here comes the bride or pop goes the weasel you know sonny rollins did that too but dexter goes beyond that he pulls in quotes from all sorts of places (laughs) yeah um i remember i think it's on this track later on he quotes take me out to the ball game (laughs) yeah so it's just it's cool if if you want to Give yourself a challenge. Keep track of all the quotes that Dexter does, not only in this solo, but throughout the album. And try and keep keep score of how many he does. That would be kind of a, a cool challenge to do. Um, later on at 302 to 303, he plays a lick, and then he repeats it a half step up. That's a very common technique to do. Um, there's some nice diminished licks around 330. Overall, I'd say there's a more blues element in both Dexter's solo and Sonny Clark's solo. The blues come out a little bit more on this track, and I really like that. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, as far as Sonny Clark's solo, it gets he gets really bluesy with this one, and I, I really, really like it. It's definitely different from the rest of the album, and it's kind of a fun way to end this album. Um, And they're really, this is kind of encapsulating so many different feelings into this album. Like, it's got... The, all the swing elements we've talked of and the bebop playing and Dexter's playing is very bebop oriented and and then the blues into this hard bop album I think this album just kind of has it all it's it's a great encapsulation of all the different elements of jazz into this this album and Dexter's playing is so everyone's playing is so good on it so I think that's really cool that this one they're kind of getting they're letting the blues run loose on this one which is which is really cool yeah I I you know, I I love the blues. I have an affinity for it. I think it's a great aspect of this music. It's foundational. It needs to be there somewhere, and it comes out a lot on this track. I really appreciate that. Um, another thing to say is, you know, here he Dexter comes back in with another solo, second time, but he only does it um, for half of the length of a full chorus so he does you know does a solo for another 16 bars starts out with take me out to the ball game like i mentioned earlier and then they do the head out for the last 16 bars and the song ends with the chimes sound that were used as part of the introduction of the song and it's only played by the piano uh um piano and, and bass i believe and they kind of end with a final two-note chord that's played together and then a final low note played by Sonny's left hand of the piano. And it just kind of ends. And I have kind of a question mark, personally. I, I like that. Um, but if, I, if it were me, I would have included the saxophone on that final lick or final idea. It, I really wish Dexter had played on that outro. I don't know why it doesn't really mean anything if he does or doesn't. It's not, a, uh, you know, it's not a must. It's not something that I'm begging for, but it just leaves it leaves me a little puzzled. I wish the album would have, you know, ended with Dexter Gordon on the final uh, sound. You know, uh, I mean, it's it's cool how they end, but I I wanted some Dexter in there. Yeah, I definitely feel that. It seems it just it seems like an interesting choice for sure. Like, but it's something that they've done 
not done in this fashion, but Dexter's kind of done at the end of multiple songs is like not do anything extra, just kind of end the song without, you know. So this time he kind of takes it to a more extreme by not even playing the last note. You know, he just lets the piano finish it out. So, yeah, it's definitely an, an interesting choice. And I wonder... I'd like to know why, you know, I'm sure that he has a reason. He probably just thinks it's a, a cool, different way to end it. So I, you know, it, I'm not going to question it, but at the same time, I am questioning it a little bit, you know? <laughs> yeah. I'm wondering. Yeah. Why but, not? Yeah. Or why, why, yeah. Why not play on that final idea? And, and the first time I listened to it, you know, years ago, first couple of times, I always kind of thought Dexter Gordon did play those chime intro and outros, mm. but he didn't. No, he doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. It's just rhythm section. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. It's just an interesting way to, to end the album. Yeah. I Altogether, I do really like this song as the ending to the album. I feel like it kind of takes the album out on like kind of a lighthearted and, and jovial note. So I kind of, I do like this one to, to end the album. Um, this is way different than anything else on the album. So I, I like it. Um, but without further ado, let's get into our top threes and our not so hot track on this album. So Max, I'll let you go ahead and go through your, your top threes and your, your not so hot for this one. Well, everything on this album, if we're talking about all the songs, they're all really fantastic. Um, I love that there's two ballads. I love the song selection. You've got an original here. So there was a lot to consider, but my number one is the number one song on the album, Cheesecake. It's just a great original tune. I think Dexter plays really well on it. Um, his style, his um, sound, his approach to music in general is showcased really well on that track and on that song. Um, and it's just a really, really well done solo on that. My second choice is, I guess I'll hang my tears out to dry. And that's for a number of different reasons, but mainly because this is kind of the instrumental version of that song. Dexter's sound is, is great on it. I love some of the ideas he plays. I love starting out rubato. Um, it's just a very dynamic recording of a ballad. And Dexter is great at ballads. And then my number three is Love for Sale. The change in feel, the arrangement, it's um, just more intricate, more fun. And so it made my uh, third place on my top three. My not so hot, just because we have to have one, is the other ballad, Where Are You? I love the playing on it. It's a great tune. I really do enjoy the melody just in general as, as a song. Um, but it doesn't quite stack up to the other ballad and doesn't quite stack up to everything else. I got, I got more from just what everyone else was doing on the other tracks. So unfortunately, where are you is my not so hot. Yeah, and I think that's definitely a great point. Every track on this album, there's not really a song that's not so hot like that. That's a great tune, and they're all great tunes. Um, I think one thing that's really interesting here is that we have the same top three songs, but in a completely different order. So yeah. my top three, I my favorite um, track on the album 
is this rendition of Love for Sale. I just, I this is probably one of my favorite jazz standards and it might be why, I love Cheesecake a lot and that's gonna be my number two, but I just, this version of Love for Sale is, it's incredible, They're, it's so great. It, the, the Bossa Nova feel, it stands out from other versions. Like I really love Cannonball Adderley's version, but this version is just different and it's, I, I, I love it and I love Dexter taking the risk for it um, for doing that and for that reason I think it pays off and it's that's why it's my number one I just really love this version of love for sale and so yeah my number two is cheesecake probably my favorite Dexter original a fantastic tune a fantastic melody um, just really killing on this one I, I love cheesecake so yeah my number two is gonna be cheesecake and then my number three is the ballad I guess I'll hang my tears out to dry this ballad is just, we talked about it earlier, it's so powerful. They don't overdo anything. They just let Dexter's ballad playing shine, and it's it's great. It's fantastic. I love I love how they are able to do that, just let the ballad be the ballad and, and give you what you need from that. So, yeah, that's why that made my, my top three. So, and my Not So Hot, as well as Max, is going to be Where Are You, and not because it's not a great tune, but just because I think that... I guess I'll hang my tears out to dry. It's just such a fantastic ballad. And I that I love that the album has two ballads, but if we're going to do a not so hot and one has to go, I think you could take where are you out and you'd still get what you need from, I guess I'll hang my tears out to dry. So for that reason, uh, where are you is going to be my not so hot track for the album. So cool. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. The, the whole album would still stand the test of time. If you took that, where are you track out? everything else would be in there still. Yeah. And you still have the the, the ballad that's, yeah, the other ballad. Yeah. So let's get into our overall album thoughts and ratings. So this is arguably Dexter's best work. And in my opinion is amongst some of the best albums of the era. It's right up there. His playing Dexter's playing is absolutely on point on this one. And he shows he's a master of the saxophone. We talked we, we spent so much time talking about different techniques, different licks, different things that Dexter did. And I think that's just, we spent so long harping on the different things and different things you can learn. I think that just speaks to his mastery of the, the saxophone. His solos blend so many different elements and styles, bebop, swing, blues, into this hard bop classic. And he does it effortlessly. It, it just sounds so easy for him. Um, one thing that I love is the rhythm sections raw and energetic. This rawness definitely contributes to the album very well at times. Um, but it sometimes I feel like it is indicative of the rhythm sections, uh, inexperience and some of the things that we talked about with Billy Higgins, uh, you know, sometimes it seems like he might've been lost at times, but you know, he's able to, he's a great player. He's able to get right back, but that rawness does show both sides of the, the coin at times. So, um, Sonny Clark, his comping, just absolutely fabulous. I think that's the standout from Sonny Clark on this album is his comping to Dexter's solos, which is just Dexter solos are so great. And Sonny's comping is top notch as well. So, and then Dexter said that this is his favorite album that he's ever recorded. And I think it's evident why that's the case. He's so dialed in on this one and he's just commanding your attention at all times. Everything he's playing, he's, he's got you, he's got you at all points and he's just commanding the room with this and, for that reason, um, I'm going to give this an overall score of a 9.5 out of 10. I just feel like this is one of the most prolific 
albums of the era. I really, really enjoy listening to this one. I listen to this album all the time, honestly. So for that reason, I'm going to give it a a 9.5 out of 10. It's very well put. Um, I appreciate many of the points you're making. Yeah, I I just think this album really illustrates some of the best Dexter Gordon that is on record. Um, His solos are beyond killer. His use of different elements from bebop to blues to swing era sensibilities. His overall fat sound, his swing, his buttery vibrato, his straight tone. Um, It's just really well featured on the album. His variety of phrase endings, the countless number of quotes. It's just overall his artistry is on point. And this is why he's a jazz legend is his contributions to the music that are showcased so well on this album. I think when we're talking about this particular record, each song is kind of similar arranging. It uh, usually includes a second sax solo on the tracks. Um, that's a, that's a neat aspect of, of these particular recordings. Um, it, it just shows it's, he, he gives a uniqueness to everything he does. It's a very distinct way to, to blow on these is to have that second chorus. It becomes a little bit predictable. You know, I would have appreciated maybe doing something different with one or two of the arrangements and not do that for every track mm-hmm. <laughs> other than the ballad. Um, but, you know, besides that predictability, it is a well-done um, execution of that arrangement on each each tune that they do that on um there is a little lack of clarity in between certain sections of tunes that are evident from some of the playing of the rhythm sections sometimes they're they're late two or three beats from where dexter gordon is because they they didn't know they're transitioning to the bridge or to the tag ending or, or something so it's not sloppy but it's just not um, as together as it could be, but because of Dexter's really overall approach and, and big sound, nothing falls apart. His leadership really sh- shines throughout this record. I was impressed also with not only Sonny Clark's um, piano playing, but the comping, as you said. He contributed some nice solos on this. And I really liked Butch Warren's time. It's expressed really well on this album, especially on the ballads, going in and out of the two feel into the four feel as much as he does. It's impressive. Billy Higgins swings throughout. Occasionally he's a little too busy on that snare drum, but that's my own issue. (laughs) Something I'll have to work through. Um, But, you know, he sounds good. The album has an iconic original cheesecake. It's one of the instrumental versions of I Guess I'll Hang My Tears Out to Drum to dry the overall song selection is distinct and it just screams dexter gordon with the two ballads and the billy Eckstein tune it's a really well curated album my overall score is an 8.9 out of 10 i didn't give it a nine or or above because of some of those inconsistencies with the rhythm section um, because the arrangements of the tunes are a little predictable but that doesn't take away from the extreme pleasure I get out of listening to this record. 
the swing, the feel, the songs, the interactions. Um, it, it is a great representation of what Dexter Gordon has to offer. Yeah, yeah. I think you make some really good good points there. And, you know, it's, um, yeah, there, this album is great. There are some different elements of, you know, different things that make it what it is. And I, yeah, I definitely agree with what you're saying there. So for our overall score for this, when uh, we combine our scores is going to be a 9.2 out of 10, which I feel is pretty accurate for, for what um, most people, critics would think of this, this album. So that's our overall score is 9.2 out of 10. I just want to say thank you guys so much for joining us. Um, please, if you have any questions or album recommendations, don't hesitate to reach out to us. Um, our email is the jazz jam podcast at gmail.com. And so uh, Max, why don't you tell them what the next album is uh, that we're going to be doing next week? It's the TS monk album. It's uh, what's the, the name of it? I forget. Yeah. We're going to be reviewing and analyzing the kind of uh, very new released recording from TS monk called two continents, one groove. And it's a, it's a live album. And I think they combine two different concerts that are on two different continents onto one album. Hmm. And uh, if you don't know T.S. Monk, I believe is the son of Thelonious Monk. Yep. And I think it's, even though it's a new release, I believe it was really recorded around 2016, 2017. And it's just now getting released. And it's um, T.S. Monk's newest album. So we're going to go over that and, and that'll be really cool to dive into. Yeah, it's definitely going to be a little bit different from, uh, especially from the Nduzu Makatini more current album. Um, it's definitely going to be different from some of the other stuff we've done. So I'm excited to get into that one. Thank you all so much. I hope you've enjoyed um, us getting deep into Go. I know I have. It's such a fantastic album. So thank you all so much for joining us. And for Max, I'm Dwayne, and we will catch you guys in the next one.